You're listening to the Crossroads Grace Podcast, a podcast of Crossroads Grace Community Church. To learn more about our gathering times and ways you can get involved, check out our website at crossroadsgrace.org. Well, good morning, everyone. How are we this wonderful Sunday? Doing good? Doing well? Glad to see you. My name is Preston Kalesha. I lead our high schooler and our young adults here at Crossroads. Uh, We are in the middle of our Pray for One series. Uh, We're wrapping up this week. I'm so glad that you're here for it. But I want to quickly tell you about next week. Uh, Who here went to the Mission and Vision uh, worship nights, either this past Friday or last Friday? Yes, it was so, so good. It was amazing. Uh, The worship, just getting to worship with everyone uh, just for like an hour, hour and a half. It was so much fun. Uh, And we learned a bunch of really exciting vision stuff that's not just about next month, but about the years to come at Crossroads. So I highly encourage you to be plugged into this next series. And we actually have a video to show you. So don't let me tell you about it. Check it out. A rhino is one of the most powerful animals on the planet. It's nearly 10 feet long, weighs over 1,500 pounds, and can run 30 plus miles an hour. And they're also very rare. Only 27,000 rhinos still roam in the wild. But even though they're massive, and they're fast, and they're rare, that isn't even the most powerful aspect of a rhino. The real power is when they work together. Because a group of rhinos is known as a crash. But that totally fits them because nothing will stop a group of 1,500 pound rhinos going 30 miles an hour who can only see 20 feet in front of them. So it goes without saying that a crash of rhinos, they make their presence known wherever they go. They make a mark no matter what they do. They are literally unstoppable. A crash of rhinos is what the church should look like too. An unstoppable force in the world making a difference for Jesus everywhere we go. But don't take my word for it. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 16. He says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, hell, will not overcome it. The church is God's unstoppable plan for how his gospel message is to reach the world. We are called to be his hands and feet to take the message of Jesus to the ones in our lives, the people far from God who need the hope of Jesus. And with hundreds of thousands of people all around us who don't know who Jesus is, the fields are ripe for the harvest. The question is, what will we do? Will we be a church that is satisfied with what God has done, or will we be a church that is passionate about what God has yet to do? It's time to rally together as a bunch of rhinos who are getting ready to crash ahead towards what God is calling us to do. It's time to realize that the power of God's strength working through us is greater together than by ourselves. It's time to be an unstoppable church for an unstoppable God. Here's the thing. We tell you regularly, don't miss this next series. Don't miss this next series, okay? It's so, so good. I'm so excited for it. Uh, as we look at what it looks like to be an unstoppable church for a truly unstoppable God. So don't miss it. Bring your friends. Invite your neighbors. It's going to be great starting next week. But this week, we are in our series wrapping up the Pray for One 
And uh, I don't know if you know this, but before I led high school, I was leading our kids' ministry here at Crossroads. And two years ago at camp, uh, it was the summer of 2022. Quick disclaimer, students, parents, if you made it through the camp of 2022, I'm so proud of you. Uh, We had like, I don't know, every kid get sick or hurt or leave camp. It was an absurd time. Uh, It was the most stressful camp ever, ever made, uh, but we all made it, and you should come this year. It's not, it's not that same, okay? It's not, not how it was then. But it was a really stressful year at camp, and I was leading uh, a cabin, or a covered wagon, rather, of fourth and fifth grade boys, and the fifth night of camp is gospel presentation night. And on gospel presentation night, it's so, so good because we're just telling these kids about Jesus. Like, it's the whole reason we're there, to tell them about Jesus, and there's phenomenal worship and an awesome message, and I was just I was, I was in it, right? I was in the feels, in the moment. And not only that, but I was super stressed from the crazy week that it had been. And it was the night after all that had been done. It was probably 12, 12 o'clock, 1 in the morning. And uh, I just needed a second. I needed, needed to breathe. So I, I walked out of our little covered wagon. I sat on the steps, and I just needed a moment. And I thought all the kids were asleep, but one of them jumps down from his bunk, and I hear a little patter of the feet through the wagon. And he pops his head out, and he goes, Preston, what are you doing out here? And I was like, well, you know, I'm just sitting. And he goes, can I sit with you? I said, sure. And he sits down and he goes, so why are you out here? And I don't know what came over me, but I proceeded to dump everything on this fourth grader. I just told him, told him everything, right? Like, I was not like too much to do, but I was just telling him, like, I'm, I'm stressed and I'm, I'm overwhelmed and I'm anxious about what's going on. And the reason I'm sitting out here, though, is because when I feel this way, I like to look at nature. Like, I like, I like to... Look into the sky, and I mean, the stars are just amazing out there at Hume, and I'd like to look at every one of them and recognize that even though they're incomprehensibly far away, and they're so massive that God placed each one there with purpose, on purpose, and he named each one, and there's a reason for it. And look at the trees around us. They're hundreds of years old. They're so tall, and they're there because God created a world and an ecosystem that could allow them to thrive in this place right where they are, all the way down to the microorganisms that are here helping nurture and helping create the soil, helping create the growth. And even with all of that and all that intentionality of God and all this beautiful world, he still decided to put me here. He still placed me in this moment, in this situation, by name, on purpose. And I dump all this out on this fourth grade boy at one in the morning. And he, he takes a second and he goes, hey, Preston. I say, yeah, buddy. And he takes a deep breath. And in this breath, I feel like time froze because like I'm ready for the moment that's about to happen. I'm so prepared for the moment that he has his eyes opened up to God in a completely different way than he ever had. I'm so ready for the moment that he'll remember in 20 years from now, he'll tell his youth group, hey, this was a revelation to me one night at camp, but I have to share it to you. I'm ready for this moment of all the work and all the training, all the preparation that I've been doing for this moment as this kid takes his deep breath in. And as he exhales, and I'm ready for this theological truth, he says, do you want to hear a joke? I said, this better be a pretty good Bible joke. Yeah, what's the joke? And he proceeds to tell me that in class last week in PE, he kept getting hit in the arm, and his PE teacher said, hey, we should buy you some new arms. And he said, well, that would cost me an arm and a leg. (laughs) Okay, good night. And he walked off, walked back to the cabin. And it wasn't the moment I was ready for. I paid too much in college for that moment not to happen, right? And it wasn't a bad moment. It was a good moment. I just... I wasn't expecting it. 
Sometimes moments happen that we're not expecting that are good, right? You know, sometimes you don't think you're going to make it home in time for dinner, but there was only two trains instead of seven, so you make it home in time. I'll never get used to the trains around here. Sometimes you apply for a dream school and you don't expect it to ever happen, but you get the letter back and it says accepted, huh? You're not expecting that moment, but it's good. But there's the flip side of it, the moments that happen that you weren't expecting that are bad. The routine checkup that turns to a diagnosis. The meeting that you thought was a promotion, but it's a restructuring of the company. Now you've got to find somewhere new to work. The conversation you were so excited for, but devastated by the results. We live a life full of moments. And whether we are prepared for them or not, whether they're good or not, they still come and they go. The two things that we have to know about moments is one, how you prepare for them, and two, how you respond to them, whether you could or didn't prepare for them. In a way, this whole series has been about moments, right? Back in week one, Dan told us about who's your one, and we talked about finding your one, preparing for the moment that we have a one in our life. Then in week two, we talked about why we should pray, like what's the point of it, and like preparing ourselves to be in constant prayer for the moments to come. And then last week, week three, what should our church look like? Should we be a relational church, a uh, attractional church, a missional church, or should we prepare ourselves as a body, as a congregation of Christ to be a three-dimensional church, one that combines all three of those together? We've been talking about moments. And today, as we wrap up this series, we're going to keep talking about moments, but we're going to key in on not just how we prepare for moments, but how we respond to moments that we either can't or won't prepare for. So we're going to be looking in Luke chapter 15. Uh, We're going to be focused on verses 11 through 30. Uh, That is the story of the prodigal son. So if you would, turn to Luke chapter 15, or it'll be on the screen, uh, and we're going to start with verse 11, okay? Let's dive in. It starts, Jesus continued. Okay, let's dive out. Why is he continuing? What's happening? Jesus continued, right? Uh, What's he continuing? It's a whole chapter full of parables. What's a parable? A parable is just a story that's made up And so it's a fake story to highlight a very real spiritual truth. So it's like a fable or a metaphor. Uh, So made-up story, very real spiritual implications, okay? That's what the whole chapter is. That's what this story is. All right, back to it. Jesus, uh, 15, 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger son, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And do you recognize what just happened here? Jesus tells us there's two sons, and one of them says, hey, pops, I wish you were dead. Give me my cash, please. That's what he says. Now, back when I was a youngin', uh, I had to go to my room and blast Lincoln Park and hype myself up to get the nerve to go and ask my parents for movie theater money, okay? This kid has the gall to say, I want half of my inheritance right now. And father of the year just gives it to him. It says he divided his property between them. It's unthinkable what happens, but that's how our story begins. And verse 13 says, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth on wild living. <clears throat> Duh. Right? Let's, uh, for cultural purposes, let's call this kid 18 years old. And let's say that he was given a million dollars. And it's probably more because his father, we later learn, has a huge estate and servants and all sorts. But let's say he got a mill. What do we expect from the young kid who was just given a million dollars? Yeah, 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 probably squander it, right? Let me tell you, when I was 10, thanks to a car accident, a punctured spleen, and some sweet insurance money, uh, when I turned 18, I was given a check for $16,000. To an 18-year-old Preston, that is an absurd amount of money. 
Let me clarify. To a now 26-year-old Preston, that's an absurd amount of money, okay? It's just, Chase has never looked the same. But I was given this money when I turned 18. You want to know what I wanted to do? Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. I wanted to squander it. I was so excited. I begged my parents to let me buy this green Thunderbird that was a project car. Let me tell you, I don't know how to change oil, okay? I don't know why they let me spend that money on a project car. And they did it. But all I wanted to do was squander my wealth. I wanted to start this off this way because we villainize this kid sometimes, but he's doing what a kid with a mill would do. He's squandering it. And yeah, we can be upset that he didn't take Dave Ramsey's financial peace class, but he's just going off and he's spending money. That's what I wanted to do when I was 18. So let's not turn to villainizing this kid so quickly. Yes, the way he got his money was not good, but let's not be ridiculous. What would you do with a million dollars at 18, right? So we continue. After he spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. It feels a bit Murphy's Law in this moment, doesn't it? Whatever can go wrong will go wrong. See, this kid squanders all his money, lives large. All of a sudden, there's a famine or a recession in our terms, and he has nothing. The kid's got nothing left. But we got to hand it to him. He doesn't just, like, wallow in self-pity. He pulls himself up by his bootstraps, and he gets a J-O-B. He goes out and tries to get a job. And we see right here that the only job he could get was a citizen that sent him to his field to feed pigs. Let me tell you something. I am from the concrete jungle of Phoenix, Arizona. I am what you would call a city boy. And I cannot fathom feeding pigs. I can't fathom taking care of them. I think that's yucky, okay? But... I have a son right now who is one, his name is Ozzy, and I think I'm hindering his eating ability because I hate it when he feeds himself. I always want to feed him because he ends up looking gross, and he has food all over his face. It's his hair. I mean, he's cute, though. Let's not be, let's not be ridiculous, but it's all in his sleeves, and like when I picked him up, it was all over his, ah, it's terrible. Anyways, it's gross. So I get grossed out by the thought of him taking care of pigs. And the Jews that were in the store, that were there hearing the story from Jesus, they were grossed out, but not because pigs are yucky, it's because pigs were so much worse. You see, to them, pigs were spiritually unclean animals. They weren't just gross, they were vile. They were appalling creatures that no one who was any sort of good and faithful Jew would dare touch or take care of. Do you see how far this kid has fallen? From living large, squandering his wealth, to taking care of pigs. And it's not like he's living large taking care of the pigs either, right? Verse 16 says, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. He's so hungry, he's so desperate that he wants to eat pig food. In this moment, I don't want you to see the spoiled kid who was mean to dad. I don't want you to see the kid who was off living large and made some bad financial decisions. This is someone's son. This is someone's brother. This is an 18-year-old who's starving and is craving the slop of the pigs in front of him. We should feel something for him in this moment. So what does he do? The next verse we find out, verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Do you notice how this starts out? 
It starts out by him saying, when he came to his what? His senses. Does that feel like a cop-out to anyone? It does to me, right? The cynic in me wants to say, no, no, no. He was in his senses when he went and asked his dad for all that cash. He was in his senses when he was off squandering his wealth and living like there was no tomorrow. He was in his senses when he was not thinking about his family and only living how he wanted to in the moment. It feels like this is a cop-out, doesn't it? Why does he just get a get-out-of-jail-free card because he wasn't in his right mind? But again, no part of this story has Jesus looking back at what the kid had done. Here we see what he's about to do. He says he's going to go back to his father, and the next verse is pretty important. He, said, he wants to say to his father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. He thinks that he is no longer worthy. Remember that broken kid that we saw? We got to give it to him again, don't we? He's not just some Nepo baby running back to daddy saying, make it all better. He doesn't think that he's worthy enough to be called his father's son. Instead, he wants to be a servant, to become a caretaker of the home that he was taking care of his entire life. He's going back recognizing he messed up. Have you ever been, have you ever been here before? Like, have, have you ever felt the mud of the pig pen? Have you ever smelt the slop of the food? Have you ever been so, so broken, so desperate, so hungry, so alone that you just don't know where to turn to? If you can identify with that situation, you've, you're out of it now, praise God, good for you. If you're not and you know exactly the moment I'm talking about, I want to take a side to say there is help out there. Get plugged in, get plugged into a church, this church, your church, growth group, celebrate recovery, counseling. There's ways that you can get help from people who love God and want to love you. You can find out more information by scanning that QR code on the back of your chair or outside. But if you don't feel like you've ever been there, if you feel like, no, you can't relate to this kid, I want to ask you a second question. Has there ever been a time in your life where you didn't know Jesus? I imagine the answer is yes, because at some point we all didn't know Jesus, right? And if that answer is yes, then I would like to submit that you know this kid a little bit more than you think you do. See, when we don't know Jesus, we're lost, right? When we don't know Jesus, I think that we know what it's like, even if we don't remember it. The farther away we are from when we decide to be a disciple of Jesus, the farther away those memories start to get, the specifics, the details, the smells, the sights. I'm not saying it poof goes away, but it, it fades. Back in week two, Brian told us, Brian gave us a great line that I loved is, never lose sight of how lost you were so you don't lose sight of the lost. See, I think that if you have ever had time where you didn't know Jesus, you know what it's like to be alone, to be desperate, to crave something, but you just don't know what will fill you. You know this story because you were this story. And can I tell you something? The world out there, it's full of him. It's full of this kid in a story. And can I tell you one more thing? Your one, your one is this kid. This story is about him. It's about your one. Here at Crossroads, we believe that every Christian, every disciple of Jesus should have a one, one person at least that you're praying for, that you're discipling, that you're inviting to church, that you're showing them how to live like Jesus. Everyone has a one. And I'm telling you, your one is the kid in this story. In fact, from here on out, don't think of this kid, when I say like the son or the younger son or the prodigal son, think of your one's name. 
Think of it in your head right now and replace their name with everything in the story because it's about them. You don't believe me? Let's walk through it. The story starts off by the younger son going to his father and saying, I do not need you. Give me my money. I'm out. I don't want your rules. When our ones are living a life without Jesus, they're saying to God, hey, I don't need your religion. I don't need your church. I don't need your rules. I'm out of here. I got it on my own. And next we see the son go and squander his wealth on a wild living. And our ones out there without Jesus are squandering their wealth. And I don't mean their finances. Every one of us was given a gift, given our life by a creator who created us on purpose. And without Jesus, they're living it for the world. And we can't really blame them, can we? They don't know any better. How do we expect them to know better if they don't know the one who is better? See, they're going off into a world squandering it. And next up, we see the sun run into a famine across the world. Have y'all looked outside lately? It's a famine, isn't it? There's so much hate. There's such a lack of love. So much fighting and debating. A life without Jesus out there sure looks like a famine. And then finally, after that famine, he's craving the slop of the pig food. And when we live a life without Jesus, we're trying to fill ourselves up with the slop of this world. Our ones are trying to fill our, themselves up with the slop of purpose from new tech, of upward mobility, of bigger car, faster cars, bigger houses. This story is about our one. And when we look at it in that way, we recognize that it's less about what this kid has done in the past. It's less about villainizing him for all the bad things or all the mean things he's done. It's about what's gonna happen next. This story's been full of moments so far talking about the kid, but I wanna key in on a moment that's not about him. We're gonna continue in verse 20. It says, so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. There's a beautiful moment where the son comes home, and the father sees him in the distance and sprints to him to throw his arms around him and kiss him. It's a moment of celebration and rejoicing. And the son, he tries to teach him, or he tries to remind him of all the bad things he did. In verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. There's that word again, I'm no longer worthy. He reminds him, Dad, I messed up. But verse 22 reminds us that it does not matter. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. Here's my favorite. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. There's a moment of true celebration, not just like yippee. No, no, he's like slaying the fattened calf. He's giving him presents and robes and rings. He's having his servants go do things for him. The son said, father, I've messed up. And the father only sees his son the one he loves, his one. He doesn't see the mistakes. And this beautiful moment of celebration and rejoicing can only be juxtaposed by the next character in our story, the older brother. We continue at verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. 
So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? From the father's response, we see rejoicing. And from the brother's response, we see rejecting. I've got a softball question for you, church. Here it is. Which one do you want to be like when your one comes home? You want to be like this father or you want to be like the older brother? The father. Okay, good. We want to be like the father, right? Obviously, it's a Sunday school question because it's a Sunday school answer. Of course we want to be like the father. And truth be told, I don't peg any of us to be like the older brother, right? No one in this church, no one on the staff, no one in this congregation. Like, none of us actively are rejecting. Remember, this story is about our one. I don't think any of us are gonna like, have our one be like, hey, I wanna accept Jesus, and we'll be like, no, you're gross. <laughs> you stay away. That's not gonna happen. But can I tell you the truth? The absence of doing something wrong does not mean we're doing something right. See, church, I don't think we're the older brother, but we are the older brother when we care more about our church being comfortable for the found than going and seeking the lost. See, church, we're, we're the older brother when we forget that Jesus built his rock upon the church because he wanted to go and seek the one and not pamper the 99. Church, we are the older brother when all we wanna focus on is the me, me, me aspect of church and not posture ourselves for the lost. You see, we can either sit back and wait for the ones to come home and hope we respond appropriately to that moment or we can be like the father and we can sprint to our ones. We can sprint to the one who's coming home, whether he's actually coming home or just passing by. We have a choice whether we can be like the father or we can be passive and miss the moment like the older son. But just because we're not mean to those out there does not mean that we're not being the older son. We have to respond and posture ourselves to sprint towards the lost. We can't just sit around and hope that they like our space. Be ready for them. How do we do this? Well, it starts with prayer. Shocker, it's pray for one. It starts with prayer, and not just praying for our one, but praying for us too. Look at this verse in John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21 say this. My prayer is not for them alone, Jesus says in response to his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me, I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus shows us that the way to posture ourselves towards the lost starts by praying not just for them, but also praying for ourselves and our posture towards them. Prayer for one is required. Prayer for the ones who are lost is necessary. And the next step is pray for our heart posture towards them. Let me tell you about my one, or rather my, my ones. <clears throat> my ones is a team of 20-something-year-olds that I play video games with. And before you tell me I gotta go outside more, let me, let me tell you something. I've been playing video games with these like six guys way too poorly, way too late at night for the last six years since college. And I'm gonna be honest with you. I don't really know their real names, okay? They've told me them in the past, but like when you've gone six years calling someone Azure X Fire 22, like Ben just doesn't have the same ring to it, okay? So it's this group of guys that I play games with all the time. And there's been a lot of really good moments with them, right? I've spent so much time, hours every week with these guys. There's been so many good moments. 
They know what I do. They know what I'm about. They know that I love Jesus, and I talk about it probably more than they'd like. And none of them have any faith background whatsoever. They don't go to church. They're not about it. But the moments that are so good with them are the moments where they have a theological question, where they ask me about my faith. They ask about the Bible. They ask me why I do what I do. Those moments are so good, and I'm so prepared for them. I went to school way too long to not be prepared for them, right? Like, I'm prepared for these moments where they have these theological questions. Have you been there with someone before? It's nice when they're asking the questions that you have the answers to, huh? And don't get me wrong, we should absolutely be preparing ourselves for those moments with them, the good moments, the easy moments. We should be preparing ourselves through prayer, through studying the Bible, through being in a growth group, through being in church. We should prepare for those. But there's the other side of the moments that I'm not prepared for. Those ones are a bit harder. The moments where my faith is the butt of the joke. The moments where my priorities being at church, working on Sunday nights, where that takes priority over what they think as a normal weekend. There's moments where they ask me, and a little bit harass me, why I love to talk to and about my sky daddy so much, as they call him. <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> Those moments are a bit harder. And here's the deal. I don't respond the best to them every time. I have absolutely messed up. I've either fired off or I've had a snarky remark. I've not always responded the best. So how do I posture myself to respond well for the moments that I'm not prepared for? It starts with prayer. Here's how it looks for me. Uh, it's sitting in my office, again, way too late at night, with the dimly lit computer screen flickering on me. I'm sure a camera would look ridiculous because I sit there before I play games with these guys and I pray for it. I pray for my video games like you'd pray for a meal. And it seems odd, but let me tell you why. I pray for my conversations to be directed in the right way. I pray for my responses to jokes or situations to be God-honoring. I pray for my conversation to try and veer towards Jesus, not away from it. You see, I pray not just for them regularly. I pray for myself and my response to them. Because without that, the world's going to creep in. Without that, I might not be rejecting them like the older brother, but I sure as heck am not running towards them like the father. It starts by praying for one and praying for our posture to one. Church, are we going to be a group of people that just says we have a one, or are we ready to do something about our one? Yes, pray for them. Pray for them daily. Pray for them on your knees. Pray for them on your way to work. Pray for them leaving when you're hanging out with them. Absolutely pray for them. And then pray for your heart's posture towards everyone that's out there. Pray that you might sprint towards them, that you might do anything in your power to be a person who brings Jesus to people and not sit back on our hands and hope that people come towards us. Church, are we ready to be like the father in this story who sprints toward his son, who sprints toward our one? I think we are. I think that's the whole point of our Pray for One series. Are you ready for that? Will you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you asking for you to shift our heart posture. God, it's not enough for us to say, well, we're nice to our ones. God, it's not enough for us to say, well, every now and again I think of my one. God, help us to posture ourselves toward the lost in a way that shows that you are an unstoppable God and that we are an unstoppable church that will stop at nothing to pursue the lost. Because God, that's what you did for us. 
Let us never forget how lost we once were so that we don't forget the lost. God, we love you. We praise you. It's your name we pray. Amen. We guys stand and worship with us.
the reason that we pray for one, the reason that we run out to the one, the reason that we seek the lost is not just because it's something that we think is cool to do. It's something that was absolutely modeled for us in perfection. See, Jesus' whole MO of why he came here was for the one, to leave the 99. And guess what? You and I are that one. We were that one. We are that one. Jesus came to love us, to sacrifice himself for us, to die for us. It'd be dismissive of us if we didn't do the same for others. And so every week, the body of Christ gathers together, and we take communion. Because Jesus, before he died, he was with his disciples, with his closest friends, and he said, I'm going to die, and it's for you. And so we take this bread, and we partake in it, because Jesus reminded us, this is my body that was broken for you. So we take this together now. And Jesus had some wine, and we have here some juice. And he reminds us that this is the blood that was poured out for you. And so each week we gather together, we partake in communion to remember this. Having a one, praying for our one, is nothing short of what Jesus modeled for us. If we want to be true disciples of Jesus, if we want to follow him with everything that we have to the fullest of our capabilities, we need to be running towards our one. We need to be sprinting at the lost and praying that Jesus softens our heart to take a posture that is for them. We can't just sit in this room and just hope that people show up. We got to go out. We got to get them because church, we have an unstoppable God that we need to do everything that we can to give him, to show him to others. And so every week we wrap up with Tag Your It Moments. It's just something that you should do, but these Tag Your It Moments are not just about this week. It's about the series in totality because if we take this message and we do one thing from it only this week, we're missing out on the call that Jesus has on our life. So your Tag Your It Moments are commit to the give me one prayer this week. We've talked all series about praying for Jesus to give you a one, show you in your life who your one is. Maybe it's people you play video games with. Maybe it's someone at your laundromat. Maybe it's, I don't know who it is. If you don't have a one, commit to praying for one. The second thing is pray for your one every day. Pray for them all the time. Pray that God softens their heart. And then pray for your response to them as your one. And then finally, invite your one to do something. Like, invite them to something. Pursue your one. Don't just hope that one day they'll just show up at Crossroads. You'll be like, oh, that, there they are. No, no, invite them to something, all right? Invite them to do life with you. Because Jesus came into our life. Invite them to it. Go pray for your one. Go be the church. See you guys next Sunday. Tag your it. Thank you for joining us this week on the Crossroads Grace podcast. If you enjoyed this message, please rate us and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening from. If you are interested in getting involved in our community, or want to find out more information, visit us online at crossroadsgrace.org. Thank you for listening to the Crossroads Grace podcast.